We're going to finish up Exodus 12 and then go into Exodus 13. It's the second book of your Bible, just in case you were wondering. Exodus. Now last week we looked at the Feast of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the first two feasts uh, initiated for Israel. And they were to commemorate and uh, celebrate from generation to generation the mighty hand of God and the Passover, literally that God passed over the people of Israel in Egypt. They were delivered by the blood of the Lamb. Uh, They were to leave Egypt in haste, therefore they didn't have time uh, to put yeast in the bread, so they were to do the unleavened bread thing. And it was to remind them of how they uh, left in haste, but it was also called the bread of affliction. And so it was to remind them of their slavery in Egypt. And in the New Testament, of course, we see that leaven is a type of sin and evil. And they were to sweep it out of the house. There was to be no leaven in the territory. And this was all to, rem- uh, to remind them of God's faithfulness. So we're now picking it up in verse 37 of Ac- Exodus 12. And Father, as we do read your word now and we study it and we apply it, may you bless our time, may you bless your people, may you encourage them, uh, strengthen them, give them what they need, Father. This is our spiritual food. We praise you for the word of God, which is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Job said he had treasured your word more than his necessary food. And so tonight, Father, as we feed upon it, Let us long for the pure milk of the word that we may grow thereby. We give you praise and thanks for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Exodus 12, verse 37. Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. And typically the women were not counted either. So estimates of the Exodus, numerically speaking, are two to three million people leaving from Egypt headed uh, to the promised land. Two to three million people. Talk about a job for Moses. You know, pastors who have to deal with a couple hundred people are usually very busy. Try three million. (laughs) Now you know why elders were raised up uh, to help out Moses. And a uh, mixed multitude, verse 38, also went up with them along with flocks and herds and a very large number of livestock. Now we do know that the Israelites left Egypt uh, with many possessions. They left with uh, animals, flocks and herds. Remember, uh, uh, Pharaoh kept trying to talk them into leaving things behind, but Moses said, we're not leaving anything behind. Well, there was also a mixed multitude that left with the children of Israel. And this mixed multitude probably included Egyptian people. You could imagine that some Egyptians in the whole uh, ten plagues came to believe that Yahweh, or the God of the Hebrews, Jehovah, was indeed God. Uh, By about the second or third plague, I would have been convinced personally and went and hung out with the Hebrews in Goshen. But uh, nevertheless, whatever happened, there were people, a mixed multitude that came out Uh, with the children of Israel. They had become convinced they had hidden behind the bloodstained door. Uh, If you saw the movie The Ten Commandments, you'll remember that even in the house that Moses was in with his brother and so forth, there were Egyptian people that had come to stay behind the door. 
to protect them from the destroyer. Well, something very much like that did indeed happen. And people from Egypt and perhaps other people, servants who were there in the land of Egypt as well, did convert or at least got with the uh, Egyptians. Now, there is a distinction to be made because sometimes people hang out with church people, but they're not necessarily converted. And you all know that very well. And the reason that I bring that up is because in this mixed multitude, if you're a note taker, write down Numbers 11, 4 through 6. Because Numbers 11.4 says the mixed multitude or the NIV and NASB calls them the rabble who were among them yielded to intense craving so that the children of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? The rabble, New American Standard NIV, the New King James calls them the mixed multitude in Numbers 11.4 started saying these words. We remember the fish we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. Some Italians were there too. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing except this manna before our eyes. We're sick of this bread. When we were in Egypt every Saturday night, we went to the local Pharaoh's Kingdom restaurant. And there we had whatever we wanted, leeks and onions and porterhouse steaks and T-bones and whatever. Now it's just this bread. And manna literally translated means, what is it? We got to pick the stuff off the ground. Yeah, it tastes sweet and all. But there's only so many things that you can do with this stuff, you know? We want variety. And so the rabble or the mixed multitude who had, who had not been originally Israelites started to turn the heads of the Hebrews back to Egypt. Yeah, that's right. We did have the stake back there. <laughs> they began to cry about it. Literally, the text says they wept about it. Now, usually in these days, it's the kid that doesn't want to eat the broccoli that cries. I don't want to eat this guy. Right? Trying to feed it to the dog. Well, here it was. I don't have my steak anymore. Or for you, it might be, I have my haagen It's gone on this new diet. You know, whatever it is. And they were weeping about it. But it was the mixed multitude among them who had first, the text implies, turned their heads back to Egypt. And how often have we talked about, you know, you have people in the assembly, you have people you hang out with, they say they're believers but their cravings start to have an impact on you. And the Bible says, be careful because bad company corrupts good morals. 1 Corinthians 15.33 Just because somebody claims to be a believer doesn't necessarily mean that they are a believer. Are you with me? So you have to obviously be discerning. Now, verse 39 says, They baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread, for it had not become leavened since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Now, the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years, and it came about at the end of 430 years to the very day that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night to be observed for the Lord for having brought them out from the land of Egypt. This night is for the Lord, repetition, to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. 
No foreigner is to eat of it. But every man's slave purchased with money after you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. Now there's going to be several laws in a row about people celebrating the Passover. Was the Passover limited in its celebration? Yes. It was supposed to be for people who were liberated by God's mighty hand and the successive generations that belonged to the liberated group. But if someone got circumcised, and by the way, circumcision was the sign of what? It was the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant of one being consecrated to God or exercising faith or coming into the community of Israel. And so if a foreigner wanted to partake of the Passover, he had to get circumcised. Now, no small matter, because most people who decided that they wanted to partake of the Passover were likely adults at this point. So it wasn't simply, hey, would you like a piece of lamb and join the Seder celebration? It was, <laughs> we got to take you to the back room, brother. How serious are you? Um, and this is probably a pretty good analogy about how faith should work. See, believing in Jesus is very simple. You're saved in a moment of time, but it's not a light decision. Circumcision I know the imagery uh, is sometimes hard to take, but circumcision really literally represents a cutting away of the flesh. And when you come to Jesus Christ, if I can uh, use the analogy, that's what he asks of us. Now, he doesn't say put away the flesh in order to get salvation, but when you come to Christ, there is a definite change that's going to happen. In other words, it's going to cost you something. There's going to be a cutting away of that which um, for many people they don't want to give up. And so a sojourner, verse 49, or a hired servant shall not eat of it. It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. Now just to go back to our thoughts uh, about who can partake. When we gather on a Sunday morning and we're about to t partake of the Lord's Supper, You'll often hear one of the elders of the church say, if you're a Christian and you know Jesus Christ, you can partake. But if you're not, then please refrain. Sometimes when people first hear that, they say, well, what is this, some sort of exclusive club where, you know, you shouldn't take the bread? No, wait a minute. The issue is, are you a redeemed individual by the mighty hand of God? Because if you know Christ, those elements have great significance. It represents his body. Uh, put you know, to the cross and suffering for us. It represents his shed blood purchasing us. But if someone doesn't know God, if they're not in the covenant community, if you will, then why would they take communion? I remember I was sitting at a service one time and I had invited a friend to church and this was a church where we took communion, the Lord's Supper, every Sunday. And he was really nervous to be in the church. He you know, was in a party lifestyle, not that none of us have been there before, but he was just kind of, Christianity was really new to him. And so that those elements came by and he was almost shaking. And he said, no, no, no. And he just kind of let it pass by. And really, he had a more reverent view of the Lord's table than a lot of Christians do. But see, the Passover was limited to the redeemed community or those who wanted to become part of it. Now, if you were a foreigner, you still could partake of the Passover, but you had to get circumcised. 
You know, there was a cost. There was an entering into the covenant. There was, yes, I really believe in this God and I'm going to show it by an outward sign, almost like baptism today. Okay, you don't get baptized to be saved or to get saved, but baptism is a picture of belonging to the covenant community. Circumcision is often equated with baptism. All that to say that you could not just take partake of the Passover if you had no relationship with God. And in the same way, that's how communion works. If you don't know Jesus Christ, why would you partake of the elements? It makes absolutely no sense. It's almost like people getting baptized today. Why do you get baptized if you don't know Christ? You ought to come to know him and then your baptism is a public testimony to that relationship. So there are reasons for these things. And, and this is the reason that God said, don't take it if you're a foreigner, if you're not part of that covenant community. Now notice in verse 46, uh, speaking now to the lamb in the Passover, you're not to bring any of the lamb's flesh outside of the uh, house, verse 46, nor are you to break any bone of it. Now this was a foreshadowing of the death of the ultimate lamb, Jesus Christ, because not one of his bones would be broken. In the Gospel of John in chapter 19, the uh, victims of crucifixion are on the cross on the day of preparation. The Jews don't want the bodies to stay on crosses over the Sabbath weekend. And of course it's Passover season as well. And also what the Romans would do is to a crucifixion victim, when you were being crucified, you would ultimately die of, of asphyxiation. You could no longer get breath into your lungs. And when you were on the cross, uh, there crucified, the only way to get breath was to push your body up, kind of open up your lungs to receive air. Well, the Romans, in order to speed up the death of the crucifixion victims, came and literally broke their legs with something like a sledgehammer. Now, crucifixion is bad enough. Talk about a terrible way to die. But they would literally come up and bust up the legs of a crucifixion victim so that they could no longer push themselves up. They would die more quickly and thereby not hang on the cross over the holy days. Well, when they came to Jesus, if you want to write it down, it's John 19:33. Coming to Jesus, when they saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. This was fulfilling uh, at least this one verse, which was the lamb's bones were not to be broken. And then you can also cross-reference Psalm 34:20, which is a reference, some believe a messianic reference. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken to fulfill uh, what would be happen on the cross. And of course, this is a meticulous prophecy because with all that Jesus suffered, you would expect that he might have come out of it with some broken bones. The Roman soldiers, the cat of nine tails, the beating of him with the rod and so forth, all that he suffered, but not one of his bones was broken, a fulfillment, specific fulfillment of prophecy. Psalms written a thousand years before Jesus was ever born, and of course, Exodus is about, say, 1,500, 1,600 years before Jesus ever came. So that's the meticulous nature of Scripture. Not one of his bones would be broken. Therefore, when you eat this lamb, you are not to break any of its bones. Now, all the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this, 48. But if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. There it is again. And then let them come near to celebrate it and he shall be like a native of the land. 
but no uncircumcised person may eat of it. God's very specific. The same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you. Then all the sons of Israel did so. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, 51. And it came about on that same day that the Lord brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts or their numbers. So out they come. Then the Lord, verse 1, chapter 13, spoke to Moses saying, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first of uh, offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast, it belongs to me. Now, if you like to mark your Bible, would you mark that phrase, it belongs to me. Now, see the word sanctify, beginning of verse 2. There's a Hebrew word, kadesh, and a Greek word in the New Testament called hagiatso. And these are very significant terms because to sanctify something, if you want a definition of to sanctify, means to consecrate, to set apart, to dedicate, to make holy, or to observe as holy. Sanctify. Greek word kadesh, uh, Hebrew word kadesh, Greek word hagiatso. In the New Testament, you are called the sanctified ones, set apart unto God. Uh, called out of the world and called to God, dedicated and made holy. They would call things in the temple sanctified unto God, holy vessels and so forth. Anything dedicated to God's service was called sanctified, literally set apart. And if you look at the end of verse 2, if you want to know what sanctify means, it means this, it belongs to me. Now I just kind of was looking at the text as I was studying this and that is a great definition of sanctified. It belongs to me. But more specifically tonight, you belong to him. Or if God was saying it, he would say this, you belong to me. Now that's a good thing, isn't it? I'm glad I belong to him. But see, that's what it means to be sanctified. You, God would say, belong to me. Now in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, when Paul is trying to tell the silly Corinthians <laughs> that they're to, not to be sleeping with harlots and that they can't think that they can do whatever they want with their bodies. There was a, uh, what's, what was called Greek dualism at this point in time. Greek philosophers had certain views of the body and spiritual life. And this crept into the church and the Corinthians believed that one could be spiritual, he could have a relationship with the deity, or in this case, Christians believed with God, but yet do whatever he or she wanted with their body. So the, some of the Corinthians were ha having difficulty, apparently, in their marital relationship. They thought they could go to a prostitute, be with her, and still go to church on Sunday, and everything would be cool. And the thought was this. It was a dualistic thought hey, your body's fallen and evil and it's just matter anyway, so it doesn't matter, is what they said. So you can do whatever you want with your body and you can go to church on Sunday and still be spiritual. It's almost reminiscent of some of the gangster mafia movies. You know, <laughs> they blow up all these people, kill all these people, and on Sunday they're taking communion in church. There's something wrong with this picture. Yeah, yeah, then whatever. 
And so this is what was creeping into the church and, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, he says, hey, wait a minute. Don't you know you've been bought with a price? You are not your own. You belong to me. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You've been bought with a price, Paul says, the precious blood of Christ. You can't just carry on like you haven't been dedicated to him. You've been set apart. God says, you belong to me. Don't act like you still are in Egypt. You're set apart. And this is obviously one of the biggest issues that we have in the church today. Now, none of us are perfect and none of us who stand behind these hunk of wood pulpits should say that we are. But what we ought to be saying is that we are moving more and more towards holiness. Not to get saved, not because we think, well, gee, God's, like Annette said earlier, he's going to hate me one day if I wear this clothing or something. No, we, get, we are more and more striving for holiness by the power of the Spirit because we belong to God. Because he has set us apart for a special task. And we ought to live in, in a way that reflects that, is what the Bible is getting to. It belongs to me. And Moses said to the people, remember, this day in which you went out from Egypt from the house of slavery, one translation says you went from the slave house, for by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place and nothing leavened shall be eaten. He says, remember. And I would just encourage you to underscore that in verse 3. Moses said to the people, remember. You were a slave. You were in the slave house. And this God, who says now you belong to me, he took you out. You were in shackles. You were getting your back broken by the taskmaster's whip. You were not free. You were slaves. You were doing somebody else's agenda. You were building his cities for his glory. And you were suffering. And this God brought you out. Remember. You see, sanctification is hard sometimes, isn't it? Because when I'm doing my thing in the world, sometimes I forget that I was in the slave house. And then I kind of think, well, maybe it's not so bad, you know. Well, 90% of Christians anyway are hypocrites, so, you know, just join the ranks. Now God says, you belong to me. I dedicated you. I set you apart. I took you out of that slave house. Not so you would carry on like one of them. Not so you would uh, listen to the voice of the rabble who says, well, go back because remember the stakes you used to have? No. Remember. On this day in the month of Abib, verse 4, you are about to go forth. And it shall be when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, this new promised land, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, which he swore to your fathers, remember, to Abraham, to give to you a land flowing with milk and honey that you shall observe this rite in this month. For seven days, now going over some of the things we've looked at before, you shall eat unleavened bread and on the seventh day there shall be a feast of the Lord. Remember those solemn assemblies, the gathering of God's people. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days and nothing leaven shall be seen among you nor shall any leaven be seen among you at all your borders. Get it out. 
And you shall tell your son on that day, saying, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Why do you go to church, Dad? Why do you take that cracker and that juice? Why don't you watch that? Why don't you speak that way? Son, daughter, it's because what the Lord has done for me. See, I belong to him. He took me out of the slave house. And every time we gather at this table and we sweep the leaven out of our houses and we sit and that lamb is roasted and we eat those bitter herbs and we drink those four cups of wine, I'm telling you right now, the reason we do it is because I was a slave and now I'm free. Because a lamb's blood painted my posts. Because I'm a child of the living God. I belong to him. I don't belong to the world. I don't belong to the devil anymore. I've been set free. So when your son asks you, verse 8, you tell him, this is what the Lord did for me. Carrie, I hear you say that all the time. That's a beautiful thing. This is what the Lord did for me. I came out of Egypt. And it shall serve, verse 9, as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth for with a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Now, we're going to look at a little later these phylacteries, these remembrances. But the Israelites were to keep the remembrances, something like almost like a bracelet, and it developed into kind of a wooden box with, with scriptures from actually from our passage here called phylacteries. And Jesus is going to talk about how the Jews eventually abused those. But they were reminders. They would wear the scripture passages around the wrist and on their forehead. Now, some scholars look at this and they say, well, that was really a symbolic thing. It was that they were to think about their hand or their wrist and to remember that whatever they put their hands to, since they belong to God, they would remember the Exodus. They would remember God's mighty hand, remember that they were dedicated to the Lord and use these hands for good purposes. Paul said in Romans 6, use the members of your body, your body parts, for good, for righteous things. And then the forehead, well, you can't help but think of the mind. So did they literally have to put scriptures, like, you know, did they wear the bandana with scripture? Well, some of them, it did come to that. But some think, no, more symbolic, like, what's in my mind? Jesus said, you know, in Jewish thought, the mind and the heart were basically synonymous. It was the core of your being. And Jesus said, out of the abundance of your heart, in Matthew, I believe it's chapter 12, your mouth speaks. So what you put your hands to, what you put your mind to, let it all tie back to you were in the slave house, you were set free, you've been dedicated to God, so whatever put you, you put your hands to, whatever you put your mind to, whatever comes out of your mouth is reflective of that. That was the point. And so here is the sign. It should be a sign. And here's a question for you tonight. What marks you? What kind of signs do you give to people? Are you marked by uh, a person who's been part of the Exodus? Is that, does that, uh, is that what comes out of the mouth? That it be in your mouth? Uh, with, for with a powerful hand, end of verse 9, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall keep this ordinance at its appointed time from year to year. 
Now it shall come about when the Lord brings you to the land, that new land of the Canaanite, the promised land, as he swore to your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord. So here it is now. When you come into this promised land, remember Remember the Passover. Remember the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember that you are sanctified unto God and then you are to sanctify something. Every one of your firstborn, God says, are mine. They're dedicated to me. Now you see this kind of sprinkled throughout scripture. But the firstborn belonged to the Lord and the firstborn had a special place, of course, in Israel and we would even say today. And so God says, look, what did I do to the firstborn? Well, in Egypt, I took them out to set you free. But another thing happened. The firstborn on that night that belonged to the house of Israel or anybody who stood behind the blood-stained door, what happened? They were spared. They were kept from the destroyer. So God said, now... As an ordinance tied to the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you are to dedicate them back to me. I saved them, now give them to me. And there's a principle there for us tonight as well. Anything that we have is to be dedicated to the Lord, including our kids. We only have them on loan. And so we're to give them back to God and trust that He will do what's best for them. And I know as parents, you know, we... We like to try to make sure they're okay and control things, but the Lord says, give, them, give me back the firstborn. They belong to me. You shall devote them to the Lord. Notice verse 12. The first of the offspring. Every womb. This is now humans as well. Uh, the first of offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord. But every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. A donkey was considered unclean. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck and every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Now here's the deal in some kind of confusing language. It simply means this. You're to dedicate the animals. Uh, the donkey was considered unclean, so the way you redeem that unclean animal was with a clean one. But you're to give the human offspring to the Lord as well, but not to sacrifice. God is not like the pagan gods. You're to give them to me as a living sacrifice, but you're to redeem them back. And so this whole picture of redemption begins to come forth connected to the Passover, which is really what it's all about anyway. You'll see the word redeem three times in verse 13. Redeem it, redeem it, redeem it. And it shall be when your son asks you in a time to come, saying, what is this? Then you shall say to him, with a powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from that slave house. And it came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed what? Every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, explanation, I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first, offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. Now, redeem means to buy back. Um, synonymous word is to ransom. Now, if you've ever... Uh, seen one of these movies where uh, uh, there's an abduction or there's a kidnapping and there's a big ransom that the kidnapper wants, you know that in order to get that uh, 
precious thing back, there's a price paid. There's a ransom. Well, in uh, the gospel, I believe it's the gospel of Mark, Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a, remember it, a ransom for many. Redemption is what the book of Exodus is about. God paid the price for our freedom. The price in this case was his judgment and the blood of a lamb, but that was foreshadowing. It was prophetic of a future event where the payment, the ransom, would be the blood of the lamb. And he would remove us from the house of slavery. Egypt, remember, we've been over this, is a type of the world. Pharaoh is a type of Satan. The slavery in Egypt is a type of sin and what it does to us. It puts us in slavery. And through the blood of the lamb, God would ransom us out. He would redeem us. He would buy us out of there by the blood. And so this whole picture that comes together is God saying, don't forget, you remember, the firstborn belonged to me, you're sanctified, and so forth. Tell the story. Tell them why you do this. So it shall serve, verse 16, as a sign on your hand, and as phylacteries, there's that word, on your forehead. For with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Now, if you... uh, Hold your finger in Exodus and turn to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. Um, Check this out because this became, uh, I believe, over-literalized or it became kind of a religious fanatical thing. Um, And Jesus is going to confront it. Matthew 23. We'll begin in verse 1. Matthew 23, 1, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, Matthew 23, 3, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. Ouch, are you convicted. And they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. See, they want to look very religious, so they don't just have a Bible. They have a monster Bible. They don't just, you know... uh, do the normal things, you know, and, and do many of their things in secret to please God and share the gospel. They have taken the things that Moses commanded and boy, they expand them. The phylacteries are boxes on their neck now. You know, and when they go and they give at the temple, they blow the horn, you know, hey, check this out. And they give their offerings. You hey, spiritual guy. Well, Jesus said, yeah, they've taken this phylactery thing way too far. See, they lengthen the tassels and they broaden the phylacteries. See, verse 6, they love the place of honor at banquets, the chief seats in the synagogues, respectful greetings in the marketplaces, being called by men rabbi. But do not be called rabbi, for one of you, for one, excuse me, is your teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your Father who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, 
and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Now, we have to be careful with passages like this. You can call your papa father. But you are not to equate a teacher and put him in the place of God. And I will be frank with you tonight. To call a man holy father is a title only to be given to the Lord. There is no man that is to be called holy father. There's one holy father. He's in heaven. This is what Jesus is getting at. Don't you take the place of God. You can speak for God. You can stand in the place of encouraging and exhorting people to come to the Lord, but you are not the Holy Father. You are not to be getting people coming before you and thinking that you are the representative. There's only one mediator between man and God. It's the man Christ, Jesus If you want to look to a man, only look to him as he follows Christ and always realize that he's human and he's fallible. There's no infallibility among men. There are men that are much more consistent than others. There are men that live holier lives than others. There are men that are more genuine than others, yes. But there are no men that stand in the place of God. Only to represent God before people in as much as a man can do. This is what Jesus addresses. Now let's go back as we finish up in Exodus. Uh, these commandments were good and holy, but of course they can always be abused. And so as the people now are receiving this instruction and these reminders of who they really are, it came about, verse 17, that when Pharaoh had led the, let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds. This is back in Exodus thirteen seventeen, when they see war and they return to Egypt. Now God didn't take them on the straightest route out of Egypt. And he said that the reason he didn't do this is because the, there was, it was Philistine country and the Philistines would see this huge people group and they'd want to fight them. And Israel was not ready for a war. And there are a lot of people who come to Jesus Christ. And when they come, it's a beautiful, exciting time. But then opposition comes. And oftentimes, you know, when we talk about the gospel, it's important for us as pastors and teachers and and people who speak to people about Jesus to warn them that there will be opposition when you come to the Lord. To be set apart for the Lord, to be sanctified, does mean that at times you will be opposed. The Philistines are hanging out and they want war. And when you are in the camp of the covenant and you have come out of Egypt and you're ready to party. The Lord's delivered you with a mighty hand. And the Lord says, you're not ready for Philistine country. Let's go this way. I'm ready, Lord. You brought us out. You're leading us by the pillar. Oh, we got it. You're not ready. I'm ready. You're not ready. You're not ready for those Philistines. See, when you see them, you're going to want to go back to the world. So you need to get rooted. You need to get grounded. How many of us can say amen tonight? Now, you can be ready for war, but you need to be aware that you have an enemy. Annette told you a story tonight. It worked out well. 
Sorry, Louise. It worked out well. But it doesn't always work out well. Now, we have books on the Christian marketplace. Your best life now. But I was telling the guys a story. There are Christians in Muslim countries who are being accused of, uh, what, did I, what was the word I used about the Koran? They uh, desecrated the Koran. They've been accused of desecrating the Koran and they are executed. Christian leaders in Muslim-dominated countries. But they're having their best life now. See, the Christian life is not always about everything going cool. There are enemies. There are forces to be reckoned with in spiritual places. We can't be ignorant of that. We're going to be opposed at times. Have you have, ever had a rock thrown at you before? Have you ever preached the gospel? I'm talking literally. Has anybody thrown a rock at you for preaching the gospel? Then don't whine. Let's face it. As Americans, we have experienced very little persecution. But yet, if you're going to live for Jesus Christ, one pastor said, if you want to experience persecution, go to every one of your neighbors in the next two weeks before Christmas season is over and tell them, unless they repent of their sin and trust Jesus Christ, they're going to hell. You want to experience some persecution? Are you ready? Now, you would be telling the truth. Now, you'd want to use tact, obviously, and... And you'd want to use, uh, you know, all of your persuasive <laughs> ways and winsomeness. I'm using... Uh, Is that before you move? Or yeah, well. <laughs> and you'll want to shield all your cars from eggs and things of that nature. But here's the point. We've experienced very little persecution. But we need to be rooted in order to understand that a little persecution can be healthy. It's all right. Sometimes it means that you're on the right track. Don't buy it that all the time people say, well, if you don't have smooth waters in your life, you're outside of the will of God. Well, tell the Apostle Paul when you get to heaven, Paul, why do you have all those scars? He'll say, because I was in the will of God, preaching the word of God. You're not always going to have smooth waters as a Christian. And if you want to live for Jesus Christ, you have to understand there's Philistines and some of them look pretty big. So God says, uh, let's go this way. <laughs> because you'll be tempted to go back to Egypt if you have to fight right now. How many of you could say that that's been the case for you? <laughs> I'm done. That's it. <laughs> I've written four or five resignation letters. I haven't sent them to anybody yet. <laughs> Since we were open and confessing with one, each one another. That's it. I'm done. That's it. Forget it. This is not... Right? But every time the Lord said, you're not sending that to anybody, I'll let you vent, but that's about it. So you're not alone. It can be hard. It can be hard. The Christian walk is a sanctified walk with the powerful hand of God, but there are Philistines. Sometimes God lets you go around them. But you know, we're about to see, folks, that there's going to be, Egypt is going to chase the world's going to chase, if I can use it that way, they're going to chase the Israelites right to the edge of the sea and they're going to go, what do I do now? And you guys know what's ahead of us, right? God's going to open a way where there looks like there's no way. And that's what you hold on to as a Christian because your God is more than able to deal with it. And so, God, it says here in our last few verses, 
Hence God, verse 18, led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. The sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. They were organized. Moses took the bones of Joseph. Remember back when we first started, Joseph said, swear to me that you'll get my bones out of Egypt. Well, they took them with him. For they had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God surely shall surely take care of you and carry my bones from here with you. Joseph was the one that got them all there in the first place. Then they set out from Sukkoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way. And in a pillar of fire by night, day and night, the Lord was there to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The Lord was faithful. He was leading the way and that's what we need. Lord, lead the way. We'll follow. And he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day. He's not going to leave you, folks nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Father, thank you that you are so faithful to us. Thank you that your presence goes with us by day, by night. You are ever faithful. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. With your mighty hand, you bought us from the slave house. You sanctified us. You said, you are mine. And we're so glad, Lord. And yes, we sometimes face our giants, our Philistines. Yes, sometimes we're tempted to say, well, we had all these things before and we forget how quickly we forget the scars on our backs, how quickly we forget that we were in slavery in Egypt and how the devil sometimes says, yeah, but it was easier. Yeah, you had those special dinners and those... And we forget that every day we were in slavery. Lord, the march is not easy but as we see in this beautiful scripture that you're with us by day and by night, you want to lead us. You tell us to follow. You provide for us in the wilderness when we feel like we're all alone. There's sustenance. And you're doing your molding and shaping and it's not always easy, Father. But we know we're on the right team and we know we're headed for the promised land. So, Father, whatever bumps, whatever bruises we face, whatever difficulties there may be, let us know. Encourage us tonight in the Holy Spirit that we can hang on. That we have a God that's more than able to part Red Seas and deal with giants and, and deal with Egyptian armies that might try to chase us down. Tonight, Father, renew our faith in you. Help us not to look back to the world and think that somehow we can find what we're looking for there. There's nowhere else to go. For you alone have the words of eternal life. And you give us life during life, Jesus. And we know it's the right life. It's not necessarily always easy, but it's right. And so, Father, help us to rest in that. Help us to uh, be set apart, to, to realize that we belong to you. And that is enough. And that you would do whatever you want with us, Lord. We've been made holy, righteous before the God of the universe. Forgiven people tonight. Clean by the blood of the Lamb. Sanctified, justified. And so, Lord, whatever we face, let us know, remind us what's important. Let these hands be put to good works. Let this mind think noble thoughts. Let this heart be in love with you. Let all that we put our hand to uh, glorify you. And in the times that we stub our toe or we look back to Egypt, remind us, Father. Give us those phylacteries. Help us to remember what you've done for us, that we were once slaves but now we're free, that we've been delivered by your mighty hand. 
Whatever is on our hearts and minds tonight, Father, we give it up to you. The stress, the strains, the relationships that we struggle with tonight. We just pray you'll work in those and you'll help us to be the right kind of people in the midst of uh, times that test us. We know you'll use them all for good. That's your way. That's your remarkable way of dealing with us. So we just want to say tonight we love you. We remember, Lord Jesus. We remember you. Thank you for being so faithful to us. And as we uh, approach Christmas now and we have all these opportunities in front of us, just help us to say, Lord, we remember. We know what you've done for us. We love you. Use us for your glory, Lord Jesus. We pray in your holy name. Amen.